Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hello, Book Festival friends. We're sorry you're not with us live and in person, but we think this is the next best thing. I'm Rebecca Wiggs. I'm the moderator today for the mystery panel of the 2021 Mississippi Book Festival. And with us are three authors, all of whom have written recent mystery books. We'll be meeting with and talking today with William Boyle, author of City of Margins. And we have Melissa Ginsburg, author of The House Uptown. And Chris Offit, author of The Killing Hills. Authors, just looking at the titles, we the very first hook that a reader and our audience is going to get is something about place. We're talking about a city, a house, some hills. William, tell me which came first, the setting, the place, or something else as you got started with City of Margins? Um, well, I, I write about my neighborhood, the neighborhood where I grew up in southern Brooklyn, and I think I'm always kind of starting there. Um, I think probably with this book, the, the time period came first, actually. I, the, the book is set in the early 1990s, and I knew, um, I knew I wanted to write about that time in my neighborhood, uh, because it was the time that was most vivid in my memory, the time when I was growing up there. And I, you know, I wanted to get out of writing about present day Brooklyn, since I don't live there right now. And um, so I started with, yeah, I guess I started with, you know, knowing I was going to write about my neighborhood again, and knowing that I wanted to set it in the in the early 1990s. Melissa, how about you? The house uptown, which came first, New Orleans or something else? Well, I have wanted to write about New Orleans my whole life. It's a city that I've had a um, a really deep and complicated relationship with. And um, I think that for this book, um, I figured out a way to do it because the characters kind of got in my head. So I think that um, probably this book started with the the relationships between these characters. And I knew that they were going to live in New Orleans and um, and and that this house in particular was going to be central to the story. Okay, Chris, how about you? Killing Hills, not a place that's right now on my top 10 list to go because, I don't know, Killing Hills doesn't sound like a real welcoming place to a person like me, but how did you come up with this place? I mean, that's where I grew up. Everything I've ever written is set in the same four square miles where I grew up. Uh, There aren't very many depictions of it in the world. Certainly not... uh, realistic ones in any form of uh, narrative. Also, if I write where I grew up, it makes research a lot easier because I know everything already. But I, I like Bill, I, uh, uh, time was, the, the period was the more important because my last book, 
I mean, Bill and I are on opposites. My last book was uh, set in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, so, and I wanted to write one contemporary. So it's time, and then really character after that becomes a, a more important factor. Um, the title, by the way, if you're interested, since you referred to it, was suggested by our fellow panelist, Melissa Ginsburg. And I think I liked it because it rhymes. There's a reference to, uh, in the book, there's references to how it, uh, we got that name. Anyhow, thank you, Melissa. You Bill, you can give me the next title, okay? All right. There you there. go. Chris, on the jacket blurb, it says, The Killing Hills is also the first crime novel ever set in the eastern Kentucky hills. Now, I have to confess, I grew up in Louisville, and that's a universe away from the eastern Kentucky hills. But I did some research, and I couldn't really find another, quote, crime novel set there either. So that's, that's a tall order. That's a big claim. Well, um, there actually was one set. That, that's an error, which I didn't even notice. Uh, I told them it was the first contemporary crime novel written by a native. Uh, Elmore Leonard wrote one in around 1970 or something. Maybe you know, Bill, though. It was, a, it was set in the 30s, um, uh, sort of uh, about moonshine running. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Moonshine or, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So ultimately, maybe it's the second, but uh, I didn't think it was a tall order to fill, really. I, I'm surprised that people haven't written about or set a crime novel there uh, earlier. It's, there's a certain lawlessness to it due to um, isolation and makes it really interesting. Mm-hmm. And as you've talked about crime novels, mystery novels, let's talk genre for a few minutes. This this panel is named the mystery panel. Is that something that you agree with for the works we're looking at today? What's what's the difference between mystery and a crime novel? Who can who can help me parse that a bit? I think the people that can help you parse it is marketing. <laughs> Fair enough. And if that's the case, is it something that you agree with as you were writing? I mean, Bill, you've been doing this some. Do you, what's it like to be kind of put in this niche? Is that something you enjoy? Do you resist? Pull back? What, how, how does mystery play into your creation of City of Margins? Well, I, you know, I don't write mystery novels at all, I don't think, but I grew up loving the mystery section in bookstores and so many of the books that I found there were not mystery novels at all were you know books by James Elroy and Elmore Leonard and Jim Thompson and David Goodis and they were they were crime novels they were noir but they weren't really mysteries um and so I'm fine with it I I I like being in that in that section um but I don't uh you know I don't think I write uh, I, I don't think there are any mysteries really in my book. I think my books are, are, you know, character driven stories about characters in a time of crisis and there's crime and, you know, it's as much about the, the place and all these characters kind of swirling around each other. Um, and, and crimes do happen, but there's not, you know, I don't write 
things generally that are like somebody needs to solve something or piece together a puzzle. I, I like those things. I don't I don't write that at all, but I'm fine with it as a, as a label. I mean, I'd rather be there than, than most places. Melissa, how about you? Do you think of The House Uptown as a mystery novel and however you might define that? Uh, not really. I do think that it incorporates some elements of crime fiction, um, some tropes of the genre. Um, it sort of echoes some, like, like it's got some thrillery pacing, even though I wouldn't really call it a thriller either. Um, it certainly has crimes in it. It certainly has like, um, uh, it can, it's sort of structured in the way that, um, that a crime novel might be structured, mm -hmm. but it's not, nobody's trying to solve anything. Um, you know, we're watching events unfold rather than trying to figure them out um, after the fact. And um, it is, it is a book that I, I mean, I think the characters and their relationships are the most important thing in the book. And that is what takes over. So yeah, I, I certainly borrow from some genre elements, but it's, um, it's, uh, it's sort of inaccurate, I think, to call the book just that. Well, Chris, circling back around to you, yours does, to, at least to this reader's mind, uh, start out with a, a crime to solve, a mystery to figure out uh, at the opening of The Killing Hills. What, what else do you have to say about putting The Killing Hills into the slot of mystery books? I, I, don't, I don't have an opinion on it uh, one way or another. I mean, it's just a, a big umbrella term that is used by uh, marketing departments seriously at publishers or bookstores. And within that umbrella are all kinds of, of novels. Uh, um, I think that this book is um, like both Melissa's and Bill's. It's about the, the dynamics and the relationships between the characters. And in my case, the relationship uh, with the land and with Bill's, it's relationship with, is native Brooklyn and Melissa and New Orleans. So, um, you know, I'm one of those people that, that I don't care what I eat, just let me know when it's ready. And I feel the same way about labeling this book. You know, I don't care what you call it, just as long as it gets read. There you go. And I get to eat. Uh, of course, of course. And the two obviously are somewhat related. And They're related. I get, I get that. <laughs> Well, again, that's why, that's why we're all so skinny. <laughs> Maybe I should take up writing for a living. I hadn't thought of that. Thanks for the tip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That said, each of you uh, have given us books where indeed uh, people get killed. Um, there, there are characters getting killed in each of these. I, I'm curious, which of your characters were either hard to kill or to me more interesting question which of your characters were the hardest for you to bring to life instead of killing off bill you want to start with that one um sure yeah i've kind of a really big sprawling cast in this book so there were a lot of a lot of characters um i don't know you know i have i have fun um writing 
bad people. So I think that the- Aren't they um, always more interesting? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the main, the, the, one of the main characters, there are, there are a handful, uh, this, this ex-cop Donnie. Um, I, I don't think he was, uh, he wasn't the hardest for me to write. He, the book started with him. Um, I mean, I, I think I, I had some some issues kind of figuring him out along the way. Um, you know, I don't know. These characters kind of, I don't know that I had a, a particularly difficult time with anyone. I, you know, I, one, of the, one of the joys of having a, a kind of big ensemble cast it, for, for me is that, you know, if, I, if I'm having trouble with someone or if I'm bored with someone, I, I'm on to the next character. And um, that's the way this book moves, you know. I, so I, don't, I try not to, to linger on characters for too long. I jump around. I think I have, this is the most point of view characters I've ever had in a book. Might, yeah, maybe. I, I was very appreciative that at each chapter as we moved, I yeah. had a helpful <laughs> heading reminding me which character so I could keep them all straight. Now, I read it pretty much straight through in two straight days, so I didn't have time to forget who anybody was. Right. <laughs> but uh, but yes, with a lot of people to keep up with, that was a very helpful part. Chris, how about you? Uh, which of your characters was either easy to uh, kill off, but which ones were hardest for you to bring to life? I mean, I, I know these people. I know how everybody thinks. I know where they come from. I know the lives that they've led prior to this uh, narrative, and I love them all. So none of them were hard, and that's uh, because I love them. You know, I, and once you love a character for... It's uh, it's a simple matter to bring compassion and generosity to them. So um, I I didn't have a difficult time uh, bringing anybody to life. Like I, I want to do it. I want to write about people that I care about. Uh, it, it's uh, it's part of what I enjoy about writing. I, I get to interact with more people that I care about. Bill, how many how many points of view are in that book? Um, you know? It's like eight, seven. I think it's seven. Yeah, I think it's seven. That's, that's about right. Did you ever get mixed up? Uh, well, you know, I have this weird thing where I, I I like to have characters who are kind of similar. So there are moments where you know, because I'm kind of obsessed with doubles and doppelgangers anyway. So, uh, you know, there are there are moments where I have two characters who are are similar but you know it's, it's not like i'm i'm not writing um like seven first person things i mean so it's seven third person so I, there's still some some distance but no i never really got mixed up melissa how about you same question about bringing characters to life or finding that their end has come yeah, I um, I think I struggled the most with a character named Ava, who's a 14-year-old girl in the book. Um, when the book opens, she has recently lost her mother. And um, so she's newly orphaned. She's grieving. She's a kid. She goes down to New Orleans, a place that she's never been. And um, so... It was hard, harder for me to find my way into her than to most of the other characters in the book who are all 
um, adults and have a lot more uh, sort of um, things happening in their lives. Ava is very isolated. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, and, and she's 14. She doesn't have a whole lot of power. There's not that many things she can do to affect the world around her. Mm-hmm. So to find a way to put her in the world and make things happen despite all of that was a little bit of a challenge. Um, but I, I will say like echoing Chris, I love her and I feel so much tenderness towards her and towards all the rest of the characters in this book. So it was always like a pleasure to engage with them, you know, um, and to build this world for them. I feel like that's what, that's what, uh, that's who I was writing this book for, was for the characters. Each of you have made reference to your previous work. All of you are not rookies. You've written some different books before or different genres, even screenplay for you, Chris, and some short stories, other things. Tell our listeners and viewers how this book is different from books you've written or things you've written in the past. Chris, could you take that one for starters? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're all set in the same place. The screenplays is just for commission for money. So that's a whole different <laughs> ballgame. Uh, but uh, I, don't, I, I don't think I have enough objectivity to know. It's in contemporary times. Other novels that I wrote in the past and short stories in the past were also set in contemporary times. But 20 years has passed. So, you know, now they're regarded, you know, they might not be seen that way. I, I have no idea. Yeah. Of course, um, you're in The Killing Hills. Uh, one of the characters who reappears, uh, his timing was in the 1950s. So you right. were in a earlier date with him. Same place. Yeah, I um, use characters from uh, and, and, and local history from the previous books I, I've written. I, I enjoy doing that. Uh, um, it's a small place. And so everyone knows everybody and knows their history. So that emphasizes that. Uh, also, Melissa's written a lot of poetry too. Now our second book right. is out next year. So Melissa, that was a nice segue over to you. Thanks, Chris, <laughs> for the handoff. Um, how was writing The House Uptown different from your earlier works of poetry? <laughs> um, well, I mean, Writing novels and writing poetry have almost nothing to do with one another. Um, I, I mean, other than like they both require sentences for the most part. <laughs> poetry doesn't even always necessarily require sentences. So yeah. So how did you do that? Um, I I think that um, when I when I write novels, I really. Th- try and make them engaging and entertaining and I try and make them move fast um and uh and also like um you know I want them to be beautifully written language is really important to me no matter what I write no Mm -hmm. matter what genre so um I I spend a lot of time thinking about the texture of the language in anything I write, but beyond that, there's like almost no overlap. Um, although in the house of town, there are moments where I allow myself to 
engage in it pretty poetically. Like there's mm-hmm. there's um, a piece at the end that reads essentially like a prose poem. Um, and that is something that, you know, I was, I was uncertain whether I could, um, whether that was like allowed in novel writing, you know, and then I just let myself do it and I'm, I'm pleased with how it turned out. So um, yeah, I think, you know, maybe, maybe it's bleeding into poetry a tiny bit, mm-hmm. but it's definitely like a novel that moves fast and is structured, you know, like sure. Highly, so but it's good to get out of one's assigned place from time to time. So there we go. How about you, Bill? How's this book, City of Margins, different from what you've written before? Or is it? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I also, you know, I write about the same place a lot, or I, you know, mostly write about the same, same place. And um, so I've been kind of, I think, building up the, the mythology of my version of that place over a few books uh this one i think is is different you know the 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 setting uh in terms of time period um the first couple of books that i wrote were set in the 2010s um and like i said this one i went back to the 90s so i just felt a lot more like i was writing about the place as i knew it when i was growing up uh that was that was a big that was a big thing for me and i was also coming off my last book before this uh, it was called A Friend is a Gift You Give Yourself. And that book was a lot more of kind of a uh, screwball noir. Um, so this was a little bit more um, a, a return to um, tonally, I think, the, mm-hmm. you know, the the world of the, the first um, couple of books. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, 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 there was a lot that I was building on that I've done previously. Um, you know, I think, I think, I think about books, uh, you know, the way I think I love music. And, you know, when I, when I look at somebody's discography and I think about, um, you know, how they approached each record and how they, you know, what the, the tone of each record was, even if they were making similar stuff, somebody like Lou Reed, who's a big, you know, artistic hero of mine. Uh, you know, that, I, that's how I think about when I, you know, a book when I'm starting it, like, you know, how am I going to set the, the tone for this thing? How is this thing going to be different than the last thing? And, mm-hmm. and so City of Margins felt more, um, it was actually of all my books, probably the most kind of claustrophobic. It's the one that really stays in the neighborhood mm-hmm. um, more than the others kind of start there and they stray around the city and they go upstate. And this one really stays in the, in the one place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked about things your books have in common. I I noticed that two of you have an epigraph. One of you does not. Could you speak a bit about the choice for those of you who chose an epigraph, how you came up with it for the one of you who does not? See, here's the mystery. I have to keep some mystery going for our listeners (laughs) here so they figure out who's who. Um, you know, why not? So let's talk about that for a few minutes. Um, Chris, tell me about your epigraphs. Well, I think epigraphs are cool. Uh, so I decided that, uh, I would use them if I ever got in print and every book I've written has one, uh, simply because I think they're cool. 
I don't like the big long ones and I don't like books when there's more than one. I think, you know, so I just, uh, and this one is from a, a poem by a pretty obscure Kentuckian. Uh, mm-hmm. And I believe the poem is called Oh Kentucky. Um, so, and I, I just have, I, I think they're cool. That's it. I know it's lame as heck, but it's the truth. And uh, I enjoy, I enjoy the, the seeking of my write things down all the time when I read it when that I might use. I have a document full of potential epigrams or epi, epigraphs. Mm-hmm. That's it. As, as a Kentuckian, I have to say it was a real hook for me. <laughs> um, I, I enjoyed uh, the immediate reference, the immediately helping me orient myself about where I was about to go in this book. So um, Thank you. May, may, may I read it just to uh, let folks who maybe don't have it in front of them say it? Uh, the moonlight falls the softest in Kentucky. The summer days come oftest in Kentucky. Friendship is the strongest. Love's light grows the longest. Yet wrong is always wrongest in Kentucky. So thank you for that. That was that was fun for me, at least. So who else wants to talk about epigraphs for a moment? Well, I have I, I also think they're cool. And I'm the other person who has them. So I guess I'll talk about them. But I have I I have. Sorry, Chris, I have three. I know Chris, Chris doesn't like multiple. Sorry, Chris. So. <laughs> um, but I, I do, I, I think they're so cool that I got three of them. So, uh, yeah. And for me, it's, you know, for me, it's usually um, kind of a tone, a tone setter when I'm, when I'm starting working on something, I just put a line, uh, you know, that I love at the beginning of the document. And sometimes I'll have a, a bunch of them and I'll, I'll cut them or change them along the way. Um, you know, this, this book has three, like I said, and one of them is from Jim, the Jim Carroll band's, um, song, uh, City Drops Into the Night, which is from the album Catholic Boy, which is probably, you know, one of the most important, um, works in my kind of personal, um, you know, mythology or whatever, you know, I I love that record and I I love that song and I just kind of started there. I think that was probably the first thing I typed was a line from that song. And then I have a line from a Joe Bolton poem that I love um, that I, I think I, I think I added that one in somewhere later um, in the process, not when I was done, but when I was working on the book, it was just, uh, you know, a line in a poem that I just thought matched the, the, um, it, it, the line is just from above the city looks like broken glass and, you know, it just felt like it matched the, the feeling of the book. And then I added in at the, at the end, I think I added in the Chester, Chester Himes, uh, an excerpt from his novel Pink Toes, um, just because um, it addressed um, ideas about uh, consequence and chance that I really um, wanted to have up front um, leading, leading into the book. Um, so, yeah, I, I, but. Other than that, yeah, I also just think they're, I think they're cool. And I I think they set, for me, they set the tone and, you know, they allow me to establish some kind of feeling going into the book. All right. Well, thoughtful listeners, by now the mystery should be solved. You know, which of our authors chose not to have an epigraph. Melissa, talk to us about that choice. Yeah. I mean, I also think epigraphs are very cool and I just, 
I'm like a sloppy record keeper. I, I just didn't, um, I was for this book in particular, so inside of it for the whole time that I was writing it, that I didn't, I didn't, I I wasn't thinking about like it's relation or like the world's relationship to other works of art Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. I felt so like immersed in it that I, and I, so I just, I didn't, I didn't, if I had tried to find one, it would have been after the fact and that didn't quite feel right. So yeah, I just went without. Maybe next time you can borrow one from Bill. <laughs> I, yeah, I got, I got You've got plenty. You know, yeah, there's more. There's an idea. I can well, share. And, and and speaking of which, it's it's obvious by now to uh, anyone that y'all clearly know each other, yeah. enjoy one another's company. Uh, I, I'm not sure about other panels, but each of you live somewhere in and around Oxford, Mississippi. What is that like? I mean, for Mississippians, we all think of Oxford as the place for writers to be congregating and you can't walk down the street without bumping into one or into a bar or restaurant and finding them. Can you talk a little about what it's like living in Oxford compared to the other places you've obviously lived before? Who wants to start with that one? Um, I'll talk about that. Yeah, I I mean... That's pretty much true. There are a lot of writers here. We all really like each other. We like each other's work. Um, It is super fun to spend time together. And I mean, it's just, it's a dream. I've lived in cities that had more writers and more writers per capita, but not the kind of community that, Hmm. that Oxford has. Like it's a, it's like a special thing to be a part of. And I think community is it evolves it doesn't last forever it's like this living growing thing and it goes through changes and it won't last this one won't last forever either but I just feel really lucky to be a part of it while it's happening it's just like this gift you know that uh I didn't do anything to deserve you know but I'm real grateful for it Chris how about you what's your take on being in Oxford um, I think that I agree with everything Melissa said there. I really think it, it probably began uh, with Faulkner. And uh, when Faulkner was living here and working, he was ignored by the town. Um, people did not care for him. They made fun of him until Hollywood came and filmed Intruder in the Dust in Oxford. So then uh, that got their attention that maybe writing was worth something. And then after that, and before the three of us moved here, you know, there was uh, John Grisham was here, uh, Barry Hanna, Larry Brown. You know, there was had a tradition was set that we're, we've entered into, and um, it's a pleasure, really. It's not really that you can't walk down the street or go into a bar or restaurant without seeing a, a writer. Frankly, writers are recluses, you know. Like, we, we don't, at least mo- I don't, go out much. Um, but when we do... do we'll get together with each other because writers, I think, can understand what another writer is going through. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and we never talk about books, which is really a great thing. Uh, Bill talks about music a lot. Uh, we all talk about movies. 
and our vegetables and kids and our chickens. So um, it's uh, uh, also, I have to say, Square Books is like the heart of the town. And that gives us, uh, uh, you know, a central uh, place. And then right next door to it, of course, is a bar that people occasionally go to or used yeah, to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bill, what could you possibly add to that? But let me, let me say this, because there are other communities around America that have well-known bookstores uh, yeah. uh, or have plenty of authors or something. What's, what's special about Oxford? Uh, yeah, I agree with everything um, Melissa and Chris said. I just, you know, I, I, I came down here, or Oxford was on my map in the first place because, because of... Larry Brown and Barry Hanna and you know Larry Brown was my favorite writer and um and also Fat Possum Records you know I I kind of felt when I was in college in upstate New York I fell in love with R.L. Burnside Records and Junior Kimbrough Records so at some point my you know early 20s I really just got into my head that I wanted to get to Oxford and I did and you know and and yeah like like Chris said I mean Square Books is at the center of it all. And when I first moved down here, it, just coming from New York where, you know, I would go to readings and it was always, it always felt kind of impersonal and it never really just, you know, I never had a, a, an experience at a reading where I talked to the writer, felt comfortable really even. And then I moved down here and started going to readings at Square Books and, you know, you're, you're meeting the writer and you're hanging out at the bar with the writer after the event. And um, I, that was part of what made me fall in love with being here. And it is also, it's very surreal to me that there are a lot of writers here, but um, not just that there are writers, like there are all the writers that I would be reading anyway, yeah. if I didn't live here, which is pretty, pretty surreal that they're all, you know, so many are in one place or so many pass through, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's not, there's the ones who are here all the time, now and then there's also you know visiting writers every year and so many so many great people passing through at the bookstore so um it's it's a it's a pretty special place could, could i just add something is that all right sure. um, um you know we were very very i felt very welcomed when i came here and um and that's important you know and i think that's part of mississippi in a uh, uh, culture is to be welcoming and open and friendly. But the other thing is there, there are readers here. There are readers in this town. There are readers in this, in this state. And that is, uh, you can be someplace where there's a lot of writers, but writers require readers and there's a lot of them here. And I think that contributes to the, to the welcome, welcomeness, welcomingness of, of the town. And also, uh, the enjoyment of the town. Well, Chris, you've set me up beautifully for my next question, which was to talk a little bit about readers. Um, and besides the obvious that, of course, writers need readers. I think we talked earlier, it, read, writers like to eat, right? So uh, we have to have readers. Do you ever think about who your readers might be either while you're writing or after you're finished with the work or after you see it on the square books bookshelf? What, how do you think about the readers of these particular works? 
who are they and where are they? Bill, have some thoughts on who your readers are? Ooh, I think we may have frozen Bill for a moment. But Chris, you look like you're online. Can you talk to me a little bit about who you think your readers are? I think I'm getting ready to be fro. Uh, <laughs> nice uh, try. Nice yeah. try. Not um, I don't. I don't think about it at all. I never think about it when I work. I know that this is a question that a lot of people have and and think so. And I think that the concept of readers is uh, comes out of classrooms, you know, and and scholars. That, that's one way of thinking about about it. Uh, you know, if I'm right, my readers are probably all the the great writers that I love who are dead and maybe they're reading them from the grave somewhere. So it's an impossibility, you know, like I, when I work, I don't think about anything but the imaginary world that I am doing my best to inhabit as fully as possible. The mm -hmm. fact that I have readers uh, is just, you know, <laughs> a pleasure mm -hmm. and, and cool. And I'm grateful, but uh, the idea of, of, of thinking about them while working or afterwards, I don't know, you know, I mean, yeah. now and again, you get an email from somebody, uh, uh, from a stranger and, uh, who read a book and that's really cool. And yeah. there's a reader, you know, <laughs> Melissa, we've had this conversation before, like Chris, you say, when you're in the middle of writing, you're in that world and you're not letting externals get in the way. Um, do you pay attention to what readers have to say, either in the form of critics or people who nowadays can all go online and comment? Do you have a thought about who your readers are? Um, I mean, I love to have contact with readers. I love getting messages from people who've read and liked the book. I mean, that's such a pleasure. Um, I, uh, I mean... I try not to, I don't have too much control as a writer over what happens to the book when it's out in the world. Yeah. And so I try not to track any of that too closely because um, it's not something that I can do anything about really. Um, <laughs> you know, I, right. I have total control over what's in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, but the thing that has, um, has really thrilled me the most with this book's reception because it's set in New Orleans and because I'm not from there. Um, I really worked hard to get the New Orleans, the depiction of New Orleans right in the book. And New Orleans folks over and over have told me um, they were surprised that I had never lived there. They were um, impressed by, uh, you know, like they recognize their city in this book. And so that has made me feel really good. Um, good. Was the one thing I was like really nervous about putting it out into the world. Great. Bill, it's nice to have you back. We're still talking about readers and um, curious about you. Do you hear from your readers? Do you have a kind of an idea of who your readers are? Yeah, I, you know, I, I do. Um, you know, I have a kind of weird career in that I probably have more readers abroad than I do here by a long shot. So, you know, it's, I, it's always interesting to hear from, from readers in France and, and the UK and Germany. I, I mean, I love, I love that. Um, and, I, and I have 
I've great some I've had some great back and forths with readers here too. Um, you know, I mean, I think it, it's so important to me to be a fan. Me personally, I, I love being a fan of other people's stuff and mm-hmm. of, of anything that I love. Um, so it means a lot to me when people take the time to, to write to me about it or to ask questions or want to talk about it. Of course, there's, you know, there's, there's every now and again, there's something that's not so nice. And that doesn't, that doesn't bother me at all. Uh, you know, I mean, so it's, it's uh, I mean, I don't get it because I would never do that. I, I, I would only write to people whose stuff I loved and be like, hey, I love this. I wouldn't write to them and be like, you, you, you are stupid. Why'd you do this or whatever, yeah. you know? But yeah, it's nice. It's like, my, it's like my mom used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So yeah. It sounds like you're hoping we will all follow that same rule. Yeah, I mean, no, do whatever, you know, I mean, I just, that my personal code of ethics wouldn't allow me to do that. So I don't understand it, but I'm not telling people what to do and what not to do. But I don't, I mean, I don't have, I don't have anything. I, I, I've missed part of the question, but I think, I think this was part of it. I don't have that stuff in my head when I'm writing. I mean, I just mm-hmm. keep my head down and do the work. I'm not thinking mm-hmm. about readers really. I mean, you know, I mean, I have to do what I, what I want to do on the page, I think so. That seems consistent with all of you. And yet, as I understand it, each of you are in some fashion going to be teaching beginning next week at the university or somewhere. Could we talk about teaching a little bit? I have a quote that I love from Maya Angelou. In 2008, in an interview, she said, I am not a writer who teaches. I'm a teacher who writes. But I had to work, work at Wake Forest to know that. How does teaching inform your writing? And then I've got another question I want to ask about how you teach this craft to students. So let's talk first about how being a teacher, being in an academic setting in some way informs what writing you will be doing. Um, Bill, can you take that one? Well, I mean, I'm in a different situation than both Chris and Melissa. I don't teach, for the most part, I don't teach creative writing. So I'd say my teaching doesn't inform it at all. Uh, I teach, almost literally teach for insurance these days. Uh, um, You know, I adjunct, I teach freshman composition. It's a, it's a different, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, doesn't have any impact on me in terms of my writing. Every once in a while, I do teach a, a creative writing uh, well, lately, anyway, I've been teaching uh, some creative writing workshops for the Center for Fiction, and that does that. That's much more, you know, that 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 is kind of the same part of my brain, and and that does inform or is informed by what I'm working on, what I'm thinking about. Um, so, yeah, that that is um, that feels more kind of in line with my writing. But the teaching freshman comp, um, you know, is not. <laughs> is not that it's it's work i mean fair enough melissa how about you (laughs) does teaching or being in a setting where teaching is going on all around you does that inform your writing in any way i don't think that it informs my fiction much at all um i love teaching um and i do have the opportunity to teach creative writing both poetry and fiction to grad students and undergrads. And I find it incredibly rewarding. The poetry classes uh, 
I think do have an effect on my poetry writing in a real positive way. Uh, but fiction is like, like teaching fiction is hard work. Writing fiction is hard work. They kind of draw on the same reservoir of, of like energy and intellect. And so I get more writing done when I'm not teaching fiction um, because I have more time and energy uh, to spend on it. So yeah, it, for me, it's um, like, I love them both and they're very separate things. Chris, how about you? What are you teaching and how does that affect your writing? I mean, I've, I've taught uh, at several schools, uh, fiction writing, screenwriting and nonfiction writing. And uh, I like it. I believe in education. There's, it, I certainly benefited from education despite having dropped out of high school once and college twice. Um, but I don't think it, it, it doesn't um, affect anything I write. Uh, occasionally, um, I, will, I will realize that, that in a classroom, I'm articulating ideas that I've had floating around in the back of my head for a long time. So that might be helpful for me to uh, make them more concrete. Uh, the only other thing I think is it's possible, uh, you know, good side effect might be um, I, I really enjoy the interaction with young people who love literature. Like there's that that's that's always exciting and important. Um, but, you know, teaching uh, creative writing keeps my mind active in terms of uh, uh, structure, sentence, uh, 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 pace, dialogue, character. And so uh, I don't know if I would go stagnant without it. If I didn't teach, I'd have a lot more time to put into this. So, um, but, uh, and I'm grateful for the job and the insurance. Uh, don't forget that. It's very important. Um, is it possible to teach mystery writing or crime writing? And if, if it is, or if you were putting together kind of a, a course, how would you possibly help a student who wants to write what you've done in City of Margins and the House Uptown and the Killing Hills? How would you help a student approach mystery or crime fiction? Bill, since, since you seem to be furthest removed from anything like that, how would how would that work if you got to shift gears? Well, I mean, it would, to me, it all, it all begins with reading. So, I mean, I would, you know, I would craft a syllabus that, um, that was full of writers that I, who's, you know, if it was my class, you know, it, was, it would be full of writers whose books were, were groundbreaking to me or kind of, you know, switched my brain or, you know, the things Such that, as. Uh, I mean, you know, certainly, Certainly the classics, you know, uh, James Cain's Postman Always Rings Twice, you know, um, David Goodis, Jim Thompson, uh, Charles Williford, that stuff. And then, you know, contemporary writers um, like Megan Abbott and um, and uh, there's a book, uh, Miami Purity by Vicki Hendricks that kind of looms large in my personal, you know, um, journeys through the world of crime fiction. Um, George Pelicanos was huge for me. So many, so many writers. Uh, Chester Himes is huge. So, you know, 
the the fun of it for me would be to try to introduce those books or or you know uh, show people those books and and learn from those books and and learn from uh, what they're what they're doing and and you know try to try to filter that through your own experience and your own voice and and make something of it. Um, mm-hmm. so. Melissa, how about you? Um, if you were going to spend a week or so of your coming semester teaching fiction and focusing on crime writing, how would you help your students figure out how to get started on their own the house uptown? Well, this is actually occasionally a part of my job um, because some of the students who wind up in my classes are working on crime novels and they really love crime fiction. So we talk about the conventions of the genre, what the reader's expectations are, how to um, employ those without being derivative, you know, like the challenges of honoring traditions and also making them new. Um, so yeah, that's something that comes up. I I agree with Bill that it, it would start with reading always, you know, and um, so one of the first things that I will talk to my students about is like, who have you read? And um, here's a list. You need to fill in some gaps, like see what you think about what what this person does with setting. See what you think about what this person does with with dialogue or with, um, you know, like how to depict um, a fight scene or something like that. So, yeah, I, I try and give them a lot of a lot of novels to study and draw from and think carefully about. Chris, what's your take on teaching how to write a mystery novel or a crime novel? I don't know if I would have a, have it be specific to the genre in order to teach a, a, a class in fiction writing, the students have to write first, you know, they have to bring something in and then there's a manuscript to look at. And then the toolbox, so to speak, for any high quality writing is going to be the same. You're going to have the same tools. I hate this metaphor in the toolbox, uh, mm-hmm. structure, dialogue, character, description, pace. I'm sure there's some others that I'm leaving out right off the bat. And that's what I would just look at. Like, I, I don't know if there's, if you want to write a, a crime novel, well, presumably you've written a lot. The biggest tip I would give people is read more books, watch less television in general, I think. But that's for everybody, not just writers. A, a big amen for that. And obviously the book festival hopes that everyone follows your good <laughs> advice there, Chris. One last question for all of you, since we're talking about TV. Now, you didn't mention movies, so I'm going to move to movies. Let's say each of you gets a phone call or an email or something here next week telling you that, Uh, City of Margins or House Uptown or Killing Hills has been picked up. It's going to be turned into a film. Unlike real life, you are going to get to be the casting director for uh, the book you have written. Melissa, who do you think might be good for some of the roles of the characters in House Uptown? I have no idea. I just I can't think that way. I don't know actors. I'm I'm not good at this question. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I well. never think about it. 
Well, maybe maybe Chris or Bill will have some ideas that they can uh, share with you that they think might be just right for your particular movie setting when it comes. Chris, how about you? Um, any ideas who is best there to be playing uh, some of the roles that you have in The Killing Hills? Uh, yeah, Robert Mitchum. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure if he's if he's available. You know, you I always think that might be around. a bit of a problem, but this you is fantasy, around, so go for it. On actors' schedules, so you know that would be Roger Robert Mitchum. I mean, and so who's the sister? Who's the sheriff role? Who plays that one? I don't know. Who would be a good one, Bill? Like I, I this is a question for Bill. Yeah, Bill's yeah. the movie guy. Like I can't think this way because Linda, his sister Linda Harden, is a real person to me. She's already real. So the idea of the of of like studying movies to figure out what actor might be able to portray her best. I, I have no idea. Which I nope. guess is why you're going to stay a writer and somebody else gets to be a casting director. It sounds like, right? Well, usually a washed up actor is a casting director. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. All right, Bill. This is um, yours then. You know, who's, well, who's going to play in that ensemble cast that you've put together for us. Uh, who's going to get to play what? I uh, I do I I love I love film so I you know I I don't think I I don't generally think about this stuff as I'm writing sure but I do like to think about it after the fact sometimes and I and there and there are people you know I write I, despite my last name people think I'm Irish which I'm not uh, my last name's Scottish but I grew up with the I'm half Scottish half Italian I grew up with the Italian side of my family so I have all these kind of saints of my imagination that are all Italian American <laughs> actors like Marissa Tomei Edie uh, Falco James Gandolfini before he died you know so I mean I think there are there are people who I always could imagine in these roles for this for this book I mean uh, and this is a this would be a problem with Melissa's book too. I think if you have young characters, casting young people mm -hmm. is almost impossible. And Melissa's got mm -hmm. a younger narrator. Casting young people is almost impossible. Even if you watch as many movies as I do, it's almost impossible to know any of those people. Yeah. You know, you're you're not going to know any of those. But for the older characters, and I write a lot of older characters, I, I definitely think like. Ava in this book, in my book, could be Marissa Tomei or Donna could be Vera Farmiga. Um, Donnie, I, Donnie, I thought of uh, Joe Manganiello. Um, so there's oh, wow. a lot of a lot of those kind of characters wouldn't be hard for me to imagine actors like that in the part. Then, you know, there's there's actors like Michael Rispoli, who I really love, who could be, in, you know, somebody. Annabella Shiora could be somebody, you know. So there's 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 lots of options for the world in my stories i think and lots of people that you know that definitely influenced me you know their their work influences me edie falco is huge i mean you know i think sure. her i think she's a genius and and i definitely you know uh, when i'm writing i i do think like man i wish i could write something that would be good <laughs> enough for her Sure. Um, every now and then we all read something, read that you know, particular actors, actresses have people who write things for them uh, or with them in mind. But uh, uh, these were obviously three books that each of you wrote from a much more internal place, having listened to each of you talk about these particular ones. 
I want to thank each of our authors for making some time for being with us today. Uh, you didn't get to come to Jackson to be with us. And for that, I am sorry, but I am pleased that you made time uh, where you are to talk about your books, to talk with each other about your books. I feel like our listeners here will uh, have the sense that they've been able to sit down with each of you, maybe on Chris's back porch, since he's not going to come downtown to Oxford and be hanging out with us anywhere. He's been kind enough to let us into his home for today. For that, we are appreciative. And thank you, Chris. Otherwise, for Bill and Melissa, we might look for you as we roll down the square or are strolling around the campus uh, we'll look forward to bumping into you somewhere. And since we've seen you now at the Mississippi Book Festival, we'll know to come up and say thank you for each of the books that you have gifted We Lucky Readers all about. Thanks so much. This has been the mystery panel of the 2021 Mississippi Book Festival. Stay tuned for more panels. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everybody. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.